I'm not going to try to make the case that Paul would be at the front of a gay pride parade because he wouldn't. And our responsibility isn't to throw the Bible out, nor is it to sort of make believe we're living in an ancient time. Our job is to do theology, which is to say, how do we honor a tradition when we're living in such a completely different universe? And we're just asking the question about particularly, uh, you know, challenging and, and maybe divisive polarizing kinds of topics. But there have been polarizing topics throughout the history of the church. Hey, thanks for coming back to Changing Faith Podcast. Leanne, thank you for coming back. And we also have, you won't believe this, we, he came back for his second part. Pete Enns, thank you, Dr. I Enns. never left, Mark. I never left. <laughs> you take away the magic. <laughs> I'm with you always. You can't get rid of me that easily. So. Oh, I'm about to take my headset off. You are with me. So you also, in addition to counseling Leanne... <laughs> You get my bill. <laughs> are, are, are an author, and you've written a book that's titled "How the Bible Actually Works," mm-hmm. in response to how some people were trying to make it work. What is it that you're hoping to provide people through this this latest book? Some, what's different between it and the Bible tells me so? Yeah, the Bible tells me so is aimed at here's what's wrong. Here, 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 here's how the Bible doesn't work. It doesn't work this way. It doesn't work as a rule book. It doesn't work as an owner's manual. Because look at all the weird stuff that it does. Isn't it great? What the Bible does more is it forces us to grapple with things. But I sort of leave it at that. And, and this book is more intentionally, well, let's look at it from the other point of view. Like, okay, we know the problems with it, but what is it? And how do you read it profitably? And what is it there for? And so I, I basically the book is just a lot of examples of how I not theoretically, but just how I see the Bible working by looking at all sorts of uh, parts of the Old Testament and the New Testament as well to to show that, yeah, not only is it not sort of a, a simple rule book, we can find the verse and do this or think this. It's actually forcing us to take our own spiritual lives seriously, what I call a sacred responsibility to take that seriously, to basically own your faith without, and this is going to sound horribly heretical, but just you got to hear me out, without depending on the Bible to do the heavy lifting for you. The Bible does a lot of stuff, and it, it's it's inspirational, all these kinds of things, but it's also somewhat of a mess. And it's very structure pushes us to have to think about what is this Bible and what do we do with it? The fact that it doesn't fit together very well in many places. It says different things. People usually call those contradictions or it's very old and not at all connected to our way of thinking about the world. So how do you bring those bridges together? And in fact, the Bible has a significant degree of ambiguity. I mean, even where it looks clear, when you start thinking about, well, what do I do? it becomes unclear pretty quickly. And so I'm trying to say, you know, listen, this is the Bible's character. And what all that is doing is pushing us towards what I call in the book, just the path of wisdom, which is learning. And like we were just talking about, Leanne, we're, we're maturing in our faith because of life experiences while in conversation with our faith. That's That's what this is about, I think. And so, you know, you guys talk about changing faith. Well, that is faith. Faith changes. 
faith evolves. That's it, it does not stay still. You, you don't believe at 40 what you believed at seven or 10 or 20. You better not. Mm-hmm. Or else you have to live in a bubble someplace. Yeah. Well, some people do. <laughs> well, they, they do. And I, and I understand that. And my, my job is not to burst that bubble. But it's more for people who are trying to get out of the bubble to say, listen, there is a whole universe out here <laughs> that will honor your process, that will honor your journey, will honor your convictions of where you are right now with maybe the, the older ways of thinking. And you can come and have conversations and learn and to grow there. It's not one way or no way. In talking about uh, what the Bible actually is and how to use it, it almost sounds like you're talking about redrawing somebody's Wesleyan quadrangle. Is that? A, yeah, that's, an, an image I think that, that's uh, a great way of thinking about it. Which yeah. I guess we should um, define that. Yeah, we should. Um, yeah. Do you want to define it or do you want me to West, define Wesleyan it? quadrangle being that our, our faith is built not on any one thing alone, whether it be the Bible or our experience, but the quadrangle built up of the Bible, Scripture, our experiences, our... Oh, help me, Leah. Tradition. Tradition and reason. And our reason, yeah. And it sounds like you're taking a quadrangle that has this big, wide base of the Bible and changing what the base is, I'm not sure, maybe to reason? Um, well, no, not, not not so much that. I think, um, I don't know if there is a base, in a sense, because, you know, first of all, I mean, people have told me for years, and I ignored them for a while, but now I think they're right, that... I sort of have innately sort of a Wesleyan way of thinking about theology. And you have this quadrangular, quadrilateral, whoever you talk to, depending what, what they want to call it. But, you know, it's it's not like, okay, the Bible is the base. You got that right. And then you can sort of add your reason, your experience, and your tradition to it. The fact is that those four things are like a matrix. They're feeding off of each other because I don't read the Bible apart from my tradition, my experience, or my reason. And experience has a lot to do with just not just life experiences you've had, but the fact that, you know, I was born in New Jersey. I'm a white male of, of, of German immigrant parents. Who I am has is is always invested into the text. And that's true if you're white, if you're black, if if you're if you're if you're brown, skin color, socioeconomic context, we're all approaching this differently and our experiences in our lives feed into that. And I think, you know, that's that's a beautiful thing. It's also somewhat unavoidable. So you can't you can't really make the Bible sort of a neutral foundation because it depends on who's reading it and how they're reading it and why they're reading it. And so they, they sort of all work together. In fact, if, if, if I have to say, I don't think in terms of a base, but Richard Rohr has said this and he was on our podcast a couple of years ago, but he talked about a tricycle. We have three wheels, experience, scripture, and uh, reason. And reason in, includes um, tradition for him. So you have experience, but experience is the front wheel. That's actually what drives this. Hmm. And I thought about it. I, said, I agree with that. It's not that experience is, quote, more authoritative, but our experience determines very often how we do theology. Like when you have certain set views about how the world works and you find out your kid's gay that experience will oftentimes affect how people think theologically or you're suffering, right? So your experience is driving that. And it, to me, that's wonderful because it's not sort of a detached academic intellectual process. It's a process that involves your whole life. 
And I think our lives always have to be brought into alignment with the reality of God, let's say. But that is not the same thing as being brought into alignment with the verses in the Bible. I think there's a huge difference between those two and confusing those two things, I think it cause a lot of problems. Thinking through the implications, and honestly, thinking through specifically uh, places in my own life, but also other people in my life, um, you know, lining up what you're saying with where they're at, where I'm at. Oh, yeah. I mean, the thing is, I, I wouldn't um, like show up in a very conservative context and say, okay, here's how you got to change. I'm just reflecting my own process and, yeah. and how much sense that's made to me and realizing that, you know, there are a lot of people out there that have the same thing, you know, that we, we, we echo each other's, you know, journeys of faith. And I know journey can be like a dirty word for people because I think it can be overused, but I think pilgrimage or journey is exactly what the life of faith mm -hmm. is about. It should be, it shouldn't be stagnant. Well, yeah. yeah, well, I think it is whether we know it or not. We just try to fight against it. Yeah. yeah th there, there's people who try to make it something. I mean, how can you have certainty if it's something that's changing, you know? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, it, so it's a whole mindset that's been around for generations that uh, depending on how uh, rooted your tradition is or how far back it goes or how s strongly it influences, it, it's a hard thing to break out mm -hmm. of to, um, have this mindset of, oh, it's, it's evolving. It's of course, evolution is a bad word anyway. So. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I never respect the fact that it's difficult for people and that's why you can't just impose that on people. You have to let people figure that out. Yeah. Yeah. And, and when I'm, they do, it's nice for them to know they have a place to go. Mm -hmm. Which is what I, I hope for our podcast to be and for us personally, for friends and, and family to be, but uh, it, it's hard to know what I, I think of in particular one family member who's uh, opened up to me about how they're going through a similar change of faith. Oh, and, what, what's his name? Say it. Yeah, say it yeah, on the <laughs> Tell you how to spell it. And he, yeah, he, he tells. Don't very, worry, person at home. We're not going to expose <laughs> he, you. He tells very just... few people in the family and uh, doesn't want uh, it out there that he's going through these, these changes and has not. problems. Of course, it's the problem of evil that he, he has the biggest problem with natural disasters and such. And who doesn't. And, yeah. uh, and so I, I try to, you know, encourage him to consider, uh, are you familiar with Thomas Ward, the Nazarene yeah. theologian? Yeah. Thomas is a great guy. Yeah. Try to encourage him to, to, to consider his, his writings doesn't get very right. far. And yeah. It, it's, it's hard to, to share this experience with those you love who, who aren't also going through it. And. Cause he, he, I mean, okay. If he didn't care about losing people, he could just go ahead and do that, but he does because mm. he should, you know, and, this is, he doesn't know, want to hurt them. Right. Yeah, exactly. Cause he's, he, he's part of a community that means something to him. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's right. And he doesn't want to just blow it up, but he has to maintain some authenticity and you know, that can end in many different kinds of ways, but it just, it can't be forced, but you want to sort of share stuff that you know that you're excited about, but you can't. Yeah. So you yeah. need another outlet, but you know, it's, it's, that's a very, very difficult situation to be. I mean, I don't envy people like that. I, I have not had to do that. Yeah. That's, yeah. I was asking earlier to see what your experience was. It sounds like you right. didn't, you, you were able to, uh, you know, the, the, you lost some relationships in the 
churches or through the, the work, but not those close, close ones. Yeah. I mean, family didn't suffer and, and, uh, you know, I, I think, but there, you know, there was the, the, the loss of community, but that's different than the loss of your whole family. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. like you can't go to Thanksgiving dinner anymore. That kind of stuff. Uh, yeah. It's not, not quite that bad. Uh, in, in your, your writings now, are you, do you look at or hear from detractors or websites that, uh, don't share your views and uh, write an awful lot about you. Yeah, that happens, you know, but that's par for the course, you know, I mean, I, I look at, I'm, I want to say this the right way because this isn't coming from a place of being puffed up or anything, but if I'm half right, some of these people are really screwed theologically, <laughs> you know, and, and, and it's true. If I'm, if I'm, yeah, you know, Pete, you're a real threat and in a way, yeah, I am. And, um, you know, often I hear, you know, you're attacking the gospel and I say, no, I'm attacking you not intentionally, <laughs> but that's really what it comes down to. And you have to learn to separate those two things. What you think may not be what the gospel depends on. But again, if you're part of a community where those a- questions are answered firmly and eternally, you can't, you can't have a culture of, let's say, curiosity and let's kick these ideas around and it's coming from a different angle because your faith is actually rooted in the knowledge that you're right. And that's a difficult burden to carry. And that's why I think a lot of young people, you know, we were talking before, I think before we pressed record, but um, why a lot of people aren't younger people are just disillusioned, mm-hmm. you know, because the, these certainties for them are not, they don't, the answers to the questions we ask don't explain their reality. You know, when when you're told Christianity is the only way, and if you don't believe in Jesus, you go to hell when you die. And if you go to a school where most of your friends are Jewish, you're going to start questioning that narrative. Or you're going to be a real pain. You <laughs> yeah. know? But if you hope to have any friends, if you hope to have any sort of sense of community and friendship with people, you're going to start questioning that narrative. And, and that's a hard thing to ask people to do, you know, <laughs> you know, to, to, to renounce that sense of certainty. But, um, yeah, I mean, young people are maybe more willing to do that now than our generation, but they have to get to a point where they, where they see the need, I think, or this is just not going to happen. And there's nothing like suffering in life to show you the need to have a faith that is flexible and that can handle ambiguities and knowing that you'll never have an answer to certain questions. At least that's how I see it. In your most recent book, How the Bible Actually Works, but also in The Evolution of Adam, uh, Leanne and I came across your treatment of the writings of Paul, St. Paul, mm-hmm. and his reimagining of, I guess, reimagining of the Jewish faith is a way to put it, mm-hmm. where he looks at situations, circumcision or whatever, and just comes up with a different way of dealing with it. Do you think that he was inspired by God to do these writings? Do you think he's just an intelligent guy that looked at the situation and just came up with his own way of addressing this and decided on himself to decide the direction for the entire church? Of course, he didn't know he was doing that at the time, but maybe he did. I th- Yeah, I mean, I, I would put it somewhere in the middle. I think, first of all, what inspiration means is not obvious. And any notion of inspiration that doesn't leave room for, let's say, 
the personal experiences and personalities of the writers probably isn't a very good way of thinking about it. And even you know, conservative theologians say that too. I'm not being radical here, but there has to be some room for that. But I see Paul as more, again, this is my opinion, but I'm hardly a lone voice here in, in the wilderness, but I see Paul as being inspired by what we can call the Christ event, his own experience of Jesus crucified and risen. That's his inspiration to then work through, okay, how does this look here and now? And Paul, yeah, for, to say Paul's inspired is fine, but then you also have to account for why he's not always on his own same page, depending on who he's writing to. And when I read Paul, I just get this sense that here's this guy who has has this background and has now this experience of Jesus, and he's working it out in front of us as we speak. Mm-hmm. He's 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 working out the implications of what this means that the Jewish Messiah was crucified and raised. He's working through those implications, and you, I just see his wheels turning when I read Romans or Galatians or any other book that he wrote, letter that he wrote. So, in inspiration, I think we have to qualify, like even what we mean by that term. And too often, I think people use it to mean, well, God is sort of whispering in his ear, telling him exactly what to write. Yeah, I, I appreciated how you reminded us that those were personal letters that he was writing. You know, and how many, how many personal letters do we write that? Um, you know, are, are meant to be read by one audience and it read in a different context could mean completely different things. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's a good thing to keep in mind while you're reading that. One thing that, that struck me about this book, um, you know, I've, I read The Bible Tells Me So and The Sin of Certainty, and I, I kept thinking they, it just really resonated with kind of where I was in my journey um, and helped me kind of reimagine the Bible and and I've told a lot of people, I don't feel like through this journey that I've gone on, my relationship with God has changed. My relationship with the Bible has changed. Yeah, right. But then, <laughs> then as I was reading this book that's called How the Bible Actually Works, honestly, partway through it, I was not liking the book at all. And it was just really, I was really struggling with it. And I think a lot of it was because it wasn't, to me, it wasn't so much about reimagining the Bible, but reimagining God. And yeah. um and to me, that's a much bigger thing <laughs> to reimagine right. than to reimagine the Bible. And, you know, so par- as I was reading the your book, um, I kept thinking, what's the point of even reading the Bible then? If all we're reading is, is the wonderings of these writers um, as they're trying to figure out how, what character... God has and trying to articulate his character or match their understanding of with him with what was going on in their reality of, you know, the Messiah not Mm -hmm. coming or, you know, being stuck in exile for much longer than they were anticipating. Um, And so I I think that was a struggle that I had. So I would like to encourage our our audience, um, read this book. It really was good. And by the last chapter, I loved it again. Um, so <laughs> hang in there, <laughs> you know, even if even if there are struggles in it. Um, but well, you know, Leanne, though, isn't it interesting, though, how, see, I do think that reading the Bible should make us struggle with God. Mm-hmm. Because we oftentimes come to the Bible with certain preconceptions of how it should work. Mm-hmm. 
and our ideas of, of God are all wrapped up in how we think the Bible is supposed to work. Let's say as a flawless book of rules. I mean, that's it's a bit of a caricature, but just as an example. But when you, if your vision of God is tied up in that way of thinking about the Bible, then you read the Bible and says it doesn't work that way. It's only natural to say, well, I'm all screwed up about God too. What's the sense in all this? Mm-hmm. But that may be actually some of the power of the Bible to, to make us be a little bit more reflective and introspective about the kinds of baggage we lay on God, which are really our own fears and our own... Uh, ways of making the world a safe place for us. And God sort of gets wrapped up in all that. And and maybe this is a good way, you know, to, to look at those things and say, hey, you know what? Maybe, maybe God's bigger than our ideas. That's, mm-hmm. I mean, I think the Bible has a lot to say about how God is bigger than people expected, which is why you have these movements and changes within the Bible itself, which I, you know, go to great length in the book to talk about. Right. It's interesting to be, as I was reading your book, I'm also going through a Bible study with some friends that's um, going through the different names of God in the Bible. And, you know, this this particular study goes through 40 different names of God. And just trying to kind of wrap my head around both of those at the same time as, you know, as, as people, these writers of the Old Testament were rediscovering God and trying to figure him out, they would they would come up with different names that described his character. And so we're then in our world, lumping all of these different names together into one deity. And I was just curious, like one of the verses, um, Psalms 91.1, it says, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High, which is El Elyon, will rest in the shadow of the Almighty, El Shaddai. So we Mm -hmm. look at that and go, you know, God is the Most High. He's also Almighty. And what does that mean? But for the writer, were those two separate deities that he was talking about? And we're trying to meld it all into one? Well, I, I don't think in that case, the writer is thinking of two different deities. You, you may have that in the Old Testament, frankly, mm-hmm. but I don't think it's there. Um, because by the time the writer was writing this, all these things were melded together anyway. Okay. And you have all these different titles for God that all refer to the same, let's say, being. But it does get a little messy, you know, when you study some of the stuff historically and look at the Old Testament time and the Israelites within that larger context of the world around them. You know, they're not the only ones who called God by the name El, E-L. Mm-hmm. And they did, or Elohim. They weren't the only ones who did that. And um, it's it's just, I mean, it's it's a we have a podcast or two about that, uh, about how, you know, these names of God historically— now we read this Bible, right? And there's all these names and we don't we don't always see the historical distinctions within the text because you know these texts are written sometimes hundreds of years apart. Right. And and how these different names for God caught on at different times and they're borrowed from other cultures, like especially Canaanite culture, which seems odd because we're supposed to hate the Canaanites, but mm-hmm. there again you've got, you know, the high God, El, El Elyon, El, God, Elyon, Most High. So, you know, that's that doesn't, that the, the Israelites didn't invent that. There are other people groups that have that designation as well, but the Israelites borrow it, right? And they sort of then apply this terminology from other gods to their God, whose name is Yahweh. Sometimes. <laughs> not always you know i just think i mean the names of god are fascinating i just if, if anything it just means 
it's hard to pin God down with a name anyway. Right. Sometimes it's a title. Sometimes it's a name. Sometimes it's just a description, you know, but it's, and, and the irony is that, you know, the one name Yahweh, um, Y-A-H-W-E-H, Yahweh, yeah. Um, we don't even really know what that name is because in Hebrew there are no vowels. Mm-hmm. And it's just letters, you know, Y-H-W-H. And scholars debate, like, how, like, what vowels should go there. And uh, the and bottom line is we don't know. I mean, the name Jehovah is one way of putting vowels in those four consonants. Yahweh is another way. And so what Jews have done historically is they just call him Adonai, which means Lord, which is why anytime, see if, if your listeners care about this kind of thing, I think it's fascinating. Anytime we read the Bible in the Old Testament and you come across the word Lord spelled capital L and then a small capital O, a small capital R and a small capital D, that's the divine name that we don't know what it is. Hmm. But it doesn't mean Lord as in master. It's it's just a, it's a it's a fill in for God's actual name. And so sometimes when I, I I tell my students when you read a psalm that says Lord this Lord that, put Yahweh in there, and it makes a difference in the feel of it. You yeah. know, it just it it feels more personal actually, not what? this distant God on the throne someplace. What's a small capital? A small That's- capital. <laughs> You know, Google it, Mark. It's 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 a thing. It's actually I know a what thing. he's talking about. <laughs> it's a know? capital letter that's half the size, roughly, of the other capital letter. Oh, okay. <laughs> so it's not lowercase. No, no, it's, it's still capital. capital but it's it's okay. just little. All right. Okay, all right. Small Sorry. and stature. Show him later. So I, I will. I will. But be nice to him. <laughs> I was right. imagining lowercase, but no, it's actually a small cap. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> Sorry about that. Hey, do you have? a moment to speak about substitutionary atonement, because that is something that we have just gone around. We, we, we have our Orthodox friends who say that it's not substitutionary atonement uh, when Jesus is dying on the cross for our sins. Uh, And then we look at proof texts that absolutely make you think that that's what's going on. Yeah. What, what, I mean, that's, that's a huge I don't know if that's topic. a moment question. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I can answer that briefly. Um, I think, and I just, I, mean, I just finished reading um, a book by Fleming Rutledge, who's an Episcopal priest, and I, who I just met, frankly, for the first time about a month ago, a wonderful person, who wrote the book, uh, The Crucifixion, which I recommend to people. I mean, it's, it's, it's a really good book. And at one point she deals with this and she makes a difference between substitution and what is penal substitutionary atonement. In other words, what the Orthodox are against, and they're absolutely right. I'm totally with them on this. I think whoever thinks this way, the other way is just flat out wrong. Penal substitutionary atonement means God is so mad he's got to kill somebody. He's not going to kill you. He's going to kill Jesus instead. Jesus blocks God's wrath because God wants nothing to do but kill you. Jesus steps in the way, allows himself to be crucified, and now you're okay. Child that's sacrifice. nonsense. Yes, that, that's actually just nonsense because God and Jesus are on the same side. Mm-hmm. That, that's the that's the bottom line. And when you think that way, you can start thinking of the idea of substitution less penally. <laughs> right, less as a penalty for something that Jesus is, is, is absorbing a penalty, so to speak, um, that God wants deeply to inflict on us. Like God basically hates us, but Jesus loves us. 
Mm-hmm. But it's God so loved the world. And, and he shows his love this way that he gives his own son for our benefit. And the son is all in, right? That's a different way of thinking of like substitution. It's a big topic, you know, but, but, but the penal view is what it defines a lot of conservative Western Christians and not just conservative, but I, you know, the Episcopal, Episcopal prayer book, the, the, the book of common prayer, it's full of that, you know, and it's, it's a way of thinking about what God has done, but it's not, by any means, the dominant or major way of thinking about what the cross meant in the history of Christianity. There are many other ways, because the Bible supports many different readings. It, it supports different ways of interpreting what was the cross about. And God hates you and needs to kill somebody. I mean, my friend Brad Jerzak is an Orthodox uh, thinker. He's not um, He's not a, a, a priest, but he's a reader, whatever they call it in that tradition. But, but you know, he, he said the analogy once to me that, you know, okay, um, I'm a dad and um, you threw a rock through the window. Okay. I'm going to, I'm not going to take it out on you, but I'm going to take it out on some random neighbor kid down the street. Hmm. My wrath has to be unleashed on something. That's absurd. And to think that God is like that is infinitely more absurd. I agree with that reasoning. Yeah. I fully agree with that. I don't think God hates us. I think God has to heal us. You know, I think we're messed up people. Don't get me wrong. But, um, you know, I, I, that's why I think that's there's a way of thinking about God that makes God out bar, to be barbaric. Mm-hmm. And see, part of that, and, and I don't mean to denigrate like the Old Testament. I'm an Old Testament scholar. I love the Old Testament. But there are places in the Old Testament that sound an awful lot like God's just perennially angry. It takes very little to get God upset. But I do think you have within the Bible, including within the Old Testament, this reimagining of God, this God doesn't change, but how people understand and perceive God do change. And the whole point of the Christian faith, I think largely is for Jesus to come along and say, let me tell you what God is like. And sometimes what Jesus says lines up pretty nicely with the Old Testament, but sometimes it doesn't. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's our starting point. And, and the first thing that needs to go is God needs a sacrifice or he's just going to be really mad and just blot a people out, blot a lot of them out that I don't, you know, that, that is, that is not a Jesus-y way of thinking about what God is like. Yeah. I think I've, as I've learned more about the Orthodox faith, that's one of the things that I've really appreciated about their, their way of seeing God and their theology. It just, it seems to resonate and make so much more sense to me than, than penal substitution. Later in the book, about chapter 13, there, there's something that I don't want to let you off easy on. Okay. You ready for this? Gonna, yeah, I guess. I'm going to I'm going to read it. Paul's comments about women straddled the, straddled the line between social expectations of the day and Christian liberation from those expectations. To have obliterated those expectations would have impeded his mission to spread the gospel. Today, cultural expectations are not what they were in the Roman Empire of Paul's time, and it is our responsibility to likewise be aware of those expectations and not obliterate them lest the mission of spreading the gospel be compromised. And I think what you're saying there is Paul would have been much more liberal in what he said had the environment around him tolerated that without getting distracted by it. Well, the the environment that he grew up in, which is in part the Jewish tradition, but 
it's it's in a way it's immaterial what Paul would have done. It's more what we should do. You know, what could you possibly disagree with in that statement, Mark? That's oh, brilliantly oh, formulated. Not, it's unassailable. We're, we're not there yet. Okay. <laughs> because because the title of the chapter is figuring it out. Slaves, women, and homosexuals. No big deal. Nothing to see here. Okay. So I'm taking the point of the chapter to be, yes, we're, we're for uh, being accepting and liberating. But yet, the, the group of homosexuals, Paul writes some pretty strong things about homosexuals, on, kind of volitionally there, that doesn't sound like he's opening up the door to later on being more liberating and accepting. Yeah, I mean, he's not. Thank you. But that doesn't mean the Spirit of God isn't. Right. 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 So um, I'm not sure how he's opening the door for slavery either, finally, to think differently, because Paul never comes close to obliterating slavery. He accepts it as a social institution. He just says, you should treat your slaves. I, does, I was going to say, doesn't he open the door a little bit, give a little when he says there is no slave? No. No, that means that there is no slave, there's no free, there's no male or female. He's not obliterating sex differences. He's just saying in God's eyes, you're the same, but those distinctions remain. He's not saying there's no such thing as poor or rich or Gentile or, you know, there are economic, um, gender and, and social distinctions in that little part in Galatians. He's not saying those distinctions don't exist. They do exist. They're going to remain. But in God's eyes, they're the same. So for us to be more, more open and uh, liberating and loving of a homosexual community— is really taking what Paul had done and taking it another step beyond what he even was moving toward. Which is, I mean, that's what's, that's called theology okay. is to think about is to marry that text, the, the, the sacred text to a different time and place. And that is what the church has been doing in one way or another since its inception. Okay. Interpreting texts for different contexts and, but, but you're right. The thing is, I'm not going to try to make the case that Paul would be at the front of a gay pride parade because he wouldn't. No. But the thing is that, you know, most people think, Mark, that Paul doesn't refer to homosexuals at all. No. The, there are translations that are highly problematic of some key Greek words. And homosexuality for us has to do with a perceived um, orientation. And in Paul's day in the Greco-Roman world, one's orientation that that would have meant nothing. And, you know, people have argued like in Romans one, that the issue there is not you're homosexual as you're having sex with other men. It's more that you're a man and men have sex with women, but you have such a lust overload that you need to take it out on men as well. It's like, it's the act. That's the problem. It's not the orientation because there is no orientation. Now, if we talk today in terms of, you know, there may be some, there's some evidence for genetic predisposition for what we call homosexuality. I know this from people who have mapped the genome, right? It's not a slam dunk, but there's something there. I don't know anybody who decided one day, I'm going to make my life miserable and say I'm queer. That's more they're coming to a realization of something that's been inside them ever since they can remember. And, you know, deconversion therapy, whatever you want to call it, hasn't worked. No. It's actually hurt a lot of people. So, so, there is something that we know today that people in ancient times may not have known about the human condition. And our responsibility isn't to throw the Bible out. 
nor is it to sort of make believe we're living in an ancient time. Our job is to do theology, which is to say, how do we honor a tradition when we're living in such a completely different universe and we don't even know how to apply these texts to this situation? Something has to give. And and that's where theology is born, frankly. That's 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 the energy of theology. And 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 we're just asking the question about particularly um of, you know, challenging and, and maybe divisive, polarizing kinds of topics. But there have been polarizing topics throughout the history of the church. Is the earth flat? Is the earth the center of the cosmos? You know, things like that. I mean, people went to war over this kind of stuff, you know, metaphorically speaking, not, not real war. But, you know, they, they, it, it, was, it, was, it was like, you can't compromise the word of God. Yeah, but we got this thing called telescopes. And math, and we can figure out, you know, where we are in this cosmos, and we know we're not the center. We're going around the sun just like all the other planets are. That's not a biblical worldview. There's nothing in the Bible that hints at that way of looking at the cosmos, yet here we are. Mm -hmm. You know, we know where weather comes from. God doesn't dole out weather for us because we're good or bad. It just happens. It's natural, so to speak. There are processes that create weather for us. It's not a sign of God's wrath or God's blessing. It's just what happens. Mm -hmm. You know, we interpret the weather differently. And, you know, the list goes on and on and on and on and on. And, and, and you know, how far is too far? That's a fine question, right? I, I don't mind that question at all. But asking that question doesn't mean we shouldn't try. Yeah, I, I noticed that you, you, as I was reading the book, there was this issue of how far is too far that you brought up and that we don't know when, when <laughs> we, we don't know when, um, not at the outset. I think you have to be in it. I think you have to commit yourself to something yeah. and, and be open-minded to say, you know, I used to think something, I'm not sure if that was the right direction. Yeah. I, I don't want, I, I don't think I want to continue in that way. Okay. That's great. That's called maturing and doing theology. And I think if more of us had that attitude that we don't have to have all the right answers at the outset, but learn and even change in our thinking. And that's part of maturing. Just like a 30 year old doesn't think the same way as a 15 year old. If they do, they're in prison or they have no family, you know, something that they're, they're not going to be functional adults. Or they're politicians. Why should the spiritual life, huh? Or they're politicians. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, why, why should our life of faith be any different? Well, because God's giving us the Bible. Yeah, and look at it. Let's read it together, and let's let's see where these questions come up. And, you know, this is why I never get tired of saying how Judaism historically has had a better handle on the need, on how debate and disagreement is actually a way of worshiping God, mm-hmm. of working through these things and not making believe it's got a simple answer. And if you don't adhere to our simple answer, you can't be part of our tribe. Hmm. That's I can't believe God's like that. You know, that's, that's an attractive thought to us and the place where we are, but there are so many in the church who either aren't there yet or just plain never are going to be. And we're going to have to continue to somehow live in communion as much as we can with great disagreements. I don't know if they'll accept Mm us. Right. That happens too. People sometimes just disagree. Yeah. You know, and and the Christian church isn't perfect, and I think it's globally and all these ways so diverse. It's hard to keep everybody on the same page. Mm-hmm. But you can you can still love people you disagree with. I guess mm-hmm. can't you? I mean, I hope so. I don't really always know what that looks like. I'm not saying I do it well, 
But I think that is part of the goal. It's not to have unanimity of thought, but it's to realize that there is a a, a mystical spiritual presence that unites us more deeply than the gray matter in between our ears and what it's able to figure out. Thank you so much for being so generous. Now, if I'm ever out your way, just buy me a beer or something. Okay. If, if you do that sort of thing. Well, I was going to say, you just got me in so much trouble. <laughs> just, remember the whole Nazarene thing? Don't smoke, don't drink, oh, yeah. don't chew, don't go with girls that do. You can't do anything. No. <laughs> don't we're, remember. But we're going to the Anglican some of the Church most, now, uh, so it's okay. <laughs> Some of the most aggressive people I've ever met are Nazarenes playing basketball, though. They are so into their basketball. Yeah. Aren't I, they? Not me, but they. Yeah. <laughs> that's actually that's, the reason we left the church. It was because of basketball. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, oh, Pete, thank you so much for uh, coming to be on our podcast, because I do know that you are the host of, I believe, the only God-ordained podcast, if I'm not mistaken. So. Absolutely. But, but yeah. it's, it's not my choice, man. I didn't make that up. That's just the truth. Yeah, well. <laughs> Yeah, we you have know, to reimagine I mean, I, I a lot can't. of things. It's a burden. It's a burden. <laughs> you know how many people say to me, "You're so arrogant for thinking you're the only God ordained podcast." Aren't they all somewhat God ordained? And I say, "No, I'm just kidding." And it's sort of like I'm trying to say that there are no God ordained podcasts, even for those who actually think that they are. You follow me? <laughs> I, I do. I, I, Is that I'm, too deep? I'm right? totally okay. on board with you. That's why every time yeah. I hear it, I laugh. Good. But, but <laughs> thank you for doing that great work. Yes, we appreciate it. it. It is one of the few podcasts I actually subscribe to. So, yeah. thank you. It's yeah. fun. It's fun yeah. to do it, and we, Jared and I, we learn a lot too from our guests. So that's, it's sort of a win-win for us. We always sort of learn things that we just didn't know before. Yeah. Yes. Tell Jared we appreciate him also. I will. Okay. Thank you again. And and one more time before we finish, uh, how can people reach you? At thebiblefornormalpeople.com which is also PeteEnds.com. And everything's on there. You know, or if you want to subscribe, support us through Patreon or listen to the uh, podcast. I blog there. I have my speaking gigs. I have links to all my books. And you can even buy merchandise. You can buy a onesie for your baby <laughs> with the Bible for That's normal great. people on it. We want to get adult onesies, but I don't I think say, they're my, legal. Our youngest is 18, but uh, we'd love to. Yeah. <laughs> People have said, I want an adult onesie, and they're dead serious. Like, I don't think they make those things. Maybe I they don't. don't, don't. So. Uh, uh, okay, we're supposed to be open, reimagining. Right. Kind of like a wrestler's You're uniform. <laughs> You're pushing me. <laughs> okay, thank you again, Dr. Enns, for right, being folks, a part thanks. of Changing Faith. Thanks, just be with you.